This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. And I know this personally as I use Squarespace for my website and find it so easy to use with plenty of great templates to choose from to make it look super engaging and professional, even for a technophobe like me. And if you need any more encouragement, here are some of the amazing things Squarespace offer. You can start a completely personalised website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint AI. You can also sell your products and services with an online store. From hand-knitted decorations to digital content or services, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. Squarespace supports entrepreneurship by helping you to easily manage your clients and invoices in one streamlined workflow. Head to squarespace.com forward slash fail 10. That's fail 1010 for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code fail 10 to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. Often on How to Fail, I am lucky enough to speak to guests who move or enlighten me. If I'm really lucky, I get to speak to someone whose very presence feels like an honour. Today is one of those occasions. Yusra Mardini is an Olympic swimmer who competed in Rio 2016 and Tokyo as part of the refugee team. But it's her story leading up to the Olympics, which is even more extraordinary. Yusra grew up in a suburb of Damascus. Along with her sister, Sarah, she was trained by her father as a competitive swimmer. When war broke out in 2011, their comfortably middle-class life changed dramatically. The Mardini's house was destroyed. Their father was tortured by paramilitaries in a case of mistaken identity. Yusra narrowly missed being killed when a rocket-propelled grenade smashed through the roof of the sports centre into the pool where she was swimming. In 2015, Yusra and Sara embarked on the perilous journey to Germany to seek asylum. Having reached Turkey, they paid a smuggler to take them to Greece by boat. Fifteen minutes after setting off from shore, the overcrowded dinghy's motor failed. Faced with the prospect of sinking, Yusra, her sister and two other men got in the water and pushed and pulled the boat through for over three hours until the group reached Lesbos. From there, Yusra and Sara spent 25 days travelling on foot through Europe until finally reaching a refugee camp in Berlin. All 18 people in the boat survived, and the Mardini family was eventually reunited in Germany. Yusra was subsequently appointed the youngest ever UNHCR Goodwill Ambassador. She has published a memoir, Butterfly, From Refugee to Olympian, and her life has been made into a stunning film, The Swimmers, currently available on Netflix. Yusra Mardini, welcome to How to Fail. Thank you so much. It is 
such a pleasure to be sitting here speaking to you after retelling your story in such a short space of time. And what you lived through can't ever be put into words. But when I watched The Swimmers on Netflix, I was so incredibly moved by it. I think it's a beautiful piece of work. I wanted to start by asking you a question that I'm sure you've been asked a lot. What's it like for you watching that film? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I did not. Like when I did everything, when I crossed and when I started swimming, when I dreamt of going to the Olympics, I never thought that the story will be turned into a movie. I just was very passionate about swimming. Me and my sister decided to leave because we wanted to have a peaceful life. And now the movie's out. And it's really a surreal moment for me. Like when I watched the movie, I just had a moment to reflect and to be like, I did go through all of that. It was just crazy to think, okay, I was only 17 years old when I left and now I'm 24, I've been to two Olympics. I spoke and I brought lots of awareness to refugees. It reminded me of my relationship with my sister. It made me feel homesick as well because I Mm. miss my country. It made me feel sad to see again what refugees go through. But in general, I was proud that there is this type of movie on on Netflix that's a first. Did it feel like you watching the actress play you? It did, it did. Like, I really wanted to criticise whoever was going to play me. I was really ready to do that. But she was so kind and she was so smart. Like, she came to me before we started filming. She came to me to Hamburg. I was living in Hamburg back then. And she came and she wanted to know everything, and but not in an uncomfortable way. She just was curious. She wanted to meet me before we started filming. And in the, like, first few minutes, it was like oh yeah, what do you do? What do you study and everything? And then the next two hours, like after two hours, we felt like we knew each other since years. Mm. And we are very similar. We are very passionate about what we do. And she did an incredible job. I really, really am proud of her, yeah. I'm very aware that in asking some of the questions I'm going to ask you, you are being put in a position of reliving Mm. a very traumatic part of your life. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you how you deal with that. I honestly do not talk about the story a lot outside of, you know, my workspace, I would say, because my story became also a part of my my work, what I do with UNHCR, how I advocate for refugees. My story became basically something that I bring awareness about refugees with. It's not just about my story. That's exactly the same with... The movie, when we decided to share this story, we decided to share it because we wanted people to understand that there are millions of refugees going through the same story. But in general, it's really hard. Like in the same moment, I wouldn't feel it. And I'll be like, oh, amazing. The interview went amazing. And then a few days later, when I go back home, I might get sick uh, Mm -hmm. because, you know, you're like always telling your mind that you're fine. it's, It's okay. And then your body reacts differently and that happened I was like a few weeks ago actually a week ago to be precise or even less I was in New York and I did a lot of media and I was speaking about the story like really intensively and then I went back home and I got sick because obviously it is traumatic for me to speak about it and it's emotional but I know that the impact the story is going to make is it's really really big and I have an amazing team where like If I don't feel well, I can speak to them. I can speak to my family. I did therapy for a while, but not right now. And I have also great friends where I can talk to them Mm. about as well, yeah. I preface 
this next question with that. And so I feel bad that I'm going to ask you about it. But thank you for being generous enough to share your story. Because I think that one of the things that is so powerful about your story and so powerful about how it's been portrayed in this movie is that it shows the reality of something that for many of us, we will read about in a newspaper or we'll see a report on the news, but we don't get the feeling Mm. of like an individual going through that and all of the tiny decisions, the tiny choices you're forced to make Mm. along the way. Mm -hmm. And for me, one of the most powerful bits of the film was when you are sitting on the shore waiting for the people trafficker to turn up and then you see this boat. Yeah. And it's so unseaworthy and it's all patched up and one family refuses to get on the boat. Mm -hmm. What was that like? That's such a stupid question. But (laughs) when you see that boat and you're like, well, this is now my life through no choice that I've made. This is something that because of war I've been forced into and I've got to get in this boat. It must have been so terrifying. Yeah, in general, there there has been lots of movies made about, about the topic and about refugees and about the news and what's happening with refugees. And I do agree that people, you know, feel sad for two seconds and then like change the channel or put the newspaper on the table and walk away. That's why the movie has a, you know, a little taste of entertainment as well. Me and my sister, if you sit around in a room with us, we're very entertained. Like really, we would entertain you just by having a conversation, me and her, because that's just our personalities. And We do have sort of a type of humor, I guess. The movie portrayed the whole story very in in an amazing way. And the most important thing about this movie is that you can relate with it. And Mm -hmm. that's something very important because we all get excited when we get to be like related to anything. Like when we watch on the screen, we're like, you can relate with the sibling story as two sisters, you know, going through a lot. You can relate with the German coach story, being a coach. You can relate with the parents' story. You can relate to being a refugee or maybe the person that is helping the refugees. But yeah, I do agree that it is tough. But I've been lucky enough that the story got famous after the Olympics. And I know that the story is special, but to me... My story is just one of out of a million stories. Mm. So to me, I have been lucky that my story is featured and that I can make an impact and Mm. I do have a strong voice. And I really believe that it's because I've been authentic since day one and I didn't really try to force anything. Like I, I said no to making a movie in the beginning. And I when I was approached, I was like, you know what? I've dreamt about the Olympics my whole life, and that's what I'm going to do right now. And people in Hollywood were like, no one's going to be interested about the story anymore after Rio. And I was like, fine, mm. I want to swim. So yeah, in general, it is really difficult. And we we wanted to share the story to bring awareness, obviously, about it. If I can take you back to that moment in the Aegean Sea where you decide to jump overboard and then you are swimming in very rough waters for three hours, I think it was. Yeah. What got you through that? They tell you in the beginning it's like 45 minutes and after that we ended we ended up being three hours and a half in the water. It was a, around sunset, so that time where the water starts changing, even if it's summer, like it, it starts being more rough, it was windy. Yeah, we were 18 people on the boat with one child, he was six years old. We were only three women, me, my sister and another woman from Sudan and lots of people did not know how to swim. That was scary to me too because they knew I was a swimmer and because I knew and I did the lifeguard license, 
people when they drown they pull you in if they know yes you know that you're a swimmer or a lifeguard so that was scary to me the second thing that was like i was scared the most about and in general in life i'm scared the most about is losing my sister she has been you know my twin literally since i was born she has been there for me and when i saw her jump into the water i was like you know what i've been copying her my whole life and i learned english because of her i became a great swimmer because i wanted to be better than her i know it's a bit i'm too competitive but who else i would compete with but my sister mm-hmm. so yeah when i saw her jump into the water i jumped too to be honest without thinking and i think it helped that i was 17 and i was a teenager and i was a little bit naive my sister too i don't know if this would have happened now i would be you know i would be thinking about it a little bit more but i think it helped that i was very 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 young and i was like you know what i'm a swimmer those other people they don't know how to swim and they were panicking everyone was praying on the boat so when when i was in the water to be honest i was just thinking oh my god like how can i see the lights of the island but never reach it and it just felt surreal it did not really feel real to me yeah and and it took us yeah as i said three hours and a half to get to the shore and again as you said i've been forced to take this decision and i would have never thought that i would end up in this situation me or my sister ever in life yeah We're going to return to your status as a refugee because it pertains to one of your failures later. But before we get into your failures, the journey you went through displays the worst of humanity. But I wonder if along the way you also witnessed the best. I did. I did. That's what I always say. I say, look, when we went through the journey, there were moments that I will never forget in my life. There were moments of joy as well, even if no one helped us. Me and my sister, we met 30 people when we crossed. And those people, they were from Syria, Sudan, Lebanon, Afghanistan, Iraq as well. And they were so kind to us. And we just said hi. And then they were all sitting together somehow, like, because they were waiting for a boat. We were stuck on the shore in Turkey for like four days. So what they did was that the men would surround us women when we sleep. So the smugglers would not hurt us or anyone else because you didn't know anyone else. So sometimes you just have to trust people and we did trust them and they were incredible. They had a baby, which broke my heart and my sister's heart that, you know, they had a chain on her neck before they got on the boat with all the numbers of their family members. So if they drowned the parents, someone would rescue her. That really broke our heart and we offered to help with the baby, but then they're safe now and they made it, thank God. But yeah, in general, we were very lucky. In Budapest, we crossed as Europeans. We tried to be Europeans on the train and then someone told on us. But then another driver was like driving crazy to just help us get to the point where the buses were there from Germany to take us to Germany. There was also a girl that helped when we got to Greece. We go to this restaurant. They refused to give us water, even though we had like 500 euros. We showed her 500 euros. She didn't want to sell us water because we were refugees. But then another girl came and she was like about the same age as me. I would say 17, 18. She gave me shoes and uh, she gave the little boy sweater. So there is kindness everywhere. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing this. Let's get on to your failures. Your first failure is leaving swimming for a whole year Mm -hmm. when you were 15. And I imagine the reason you left is because your country was disintegrating into civil war. Honestly, it was so many things that happened, not just war. It was, I would say, 70% was because of war. 
it felt like I was just training and living my daily life just as a nobody. I had, I didn't feel like I was doing anything. Like I was just doing it because I could, but not because I was chasing a dream, not because mm -hmm. I knew that I'm going to get somewhere in life. And that was really frustrating because you sit in school, you go to training, you had bomb attacks. Sometimes you had to stay home. You get a really freaked out call from your mom saying, stay home today. It's really, really sensitive. Like don't go out. And that was really, really hard to deal with. Like It was like COVID, as example, when you could not go home and all the athletes had to stay home for weeks. It was the same for us as well during war. But adding to that, that you were risking your life as well in a way more dangerous situation. But there was also another small reason that was I've been preparing. I, I was preparing for the Youth Olympic Games for a few years and I was the fastest female swimmer in my country at that age. But they chose to take another one, another swimmer. And I told them to my federation, I told them, can you make a race between me and her? And they say, no, it's her turn to go. You went to the world championships. And at that point, I was like, you know what? This is not fair. I am a professional swimmer and I'm not gonna, I can't do this anymore. And another reason was that my dad left the country as well. He was not my coach anymore. And I trusted him with everything and when he left I felt really unsupported in the sport I felt like I've been taking advantage of because he was fighting for us every day every every day and he struggled with in his own way as well because every time he would build swimmers to the point where they were so good and then the national team would say oh it's time for them to go to the national team. So he would start with the new swimmers from zero. So it wasn't easy to be a professional swimmer in Syria neither. So it was multiple reasons, but I did regret it later. Yeah. Are you someone with a strong sense of justice and fairness? Is that important to you? Definitely. I'm the type of person, if I am at the restaurant and I ask like, okay, I would love to have a fresh orange juice. And if someone comes to me and they're like, give me the fresh orange juice and it's from a bottle, I'm going to be like, sorry, is that like literally squeezed right now? And they will be like, no, that's fresh from the bottle. And I'll be like, no, that's not fresh from the bottle. Mm -hmm. I am very, very precise. And like sometimes my dad was like telling us the plan of the training and then adding stuff in the end. And I'm like, no, like mm. I would cry as mm. a child. And until now, I think my dad put that in me somehow, but I feel like it's a good quality because I am very, very honest. Yes. And I, I like to get honesty from like the other side as well. And I'm like, you know what? I say I'm fine with the situation as long as you're honest and fair to me. But if mm. you're not, I sometimes get furious and I'm trying to control that. And I'm trying to protect my mental health because in the end, if it affects me. So, yeah. That's so interesting because there's a clarity to that. Yeah. There's a certainty. If you know that you're being honest and the other person's being honest, you can yeah. rely on that. Yeah. And I wonder what it's like to have that psychology in a state of war yeah. where everything is beyond your control, yeah. is unfair, is dangerous. I was reveling, literally. The year where I stopped swimming... I started running away from school with my friend. I got this piercing, this ear piercing behind my yeah. mom's back. And then on the same day of getting the piercing, I went and cut my hair very short. And my mom was furious. She was like, I got in the car. And she was like, get out of the car. 
And then I was like, where should I go? She was like, to your uncle. And it was my favorite uncle. Mm. And my cousins now, both of them, my two favorite cousins, they're all in Germany as well. That's they're cool. different than the ones who crossed with us. Yes. They came later on. But my mom thought it was a punishment. Honestly, I'm going to be very honest. I did not respect my mom most of my life. I don't know why. It was a respect, but I just never had a really good relationship with her. So no matter what I, what she said, I ignored it. I had such a good relationship with my dad because like I was swimming, like because of swimming and so on. And my mom and dad's marriage struggled years and years. It was a traditional marriage. It was a really a failed marriage and they're fine now. They mm -hmm. talk normal, but I was always on his side because mm -hmm. I heard his side of the story way more than hers. So I never had a good relationship with her and they called her from the school so many times because I was either I would have broken the door somehow with my friends like playing around or like I once we played with water balloons and then it got on the camera. The other time I was like I had a fight because someone like I was just walking in the hallway and then a girl said something mean about my dad and then I was like take it back and then my friends and her friends lots of really really childish stuff. But I did rebel a lot in that year. And I realized that this is not me because mm -hmm. I also was in the in the wrong crowd. And I was like, just hearing the gossip of, of people I did not even care about. And I was like, this is not me. This is not my life. My purpose is way bigger than that. But it sounds to me as well as though you were rebelling against the situation you found yourself in yeah. in multiple ways. In everything. Yes. Because first of all, like we had to move from our, we didn't, we were not in a stable life situation where we had to change our apartment every few months because the rent was either getting higher. I went to my grandma's house and then obviously at one point, of course they will host you, but at one point you can realize that they're annoyed from you being there. And it was the same. Sometimes I went to my aunt, like from my dad's side, sometimes to my mom's side. There was no rest for us. Like you didn't feel home anymore. Like we were already refugees in Syria, but we didn't That's realize amazing. that. Yes. We were moving from a place to another every few months, taking everything and leaving. And then when my dad left, I had this like, obviously you feel you don't have protection anymore neither because like we're four females in the house. Sometimes my mom would call and say, I'm stuck at work because there are bombings in this area. Close the door. And then sometimes she came at 2 a.m. because of what happened on the way. She had to stay in her job, like in her place where she worked. And that was terrifying. Like everything that happened and I lost swimming. I did not care about school as much. My sister was a rebel her whole life, Sarah. So that did not help. And I had to take care sometimes of my little sister, I started working when I was 15 years old as a lifeguard and I saw all of my rich friends come to the pool as, you know, guests mm -hmm. and I was working mm. and that broke my heart too because, mm -hmm. you know, I was 15 at the time and I was like, they would come to me, oh, so cool and everything and I was embarrassed mm. sitting at the pool, you know, working at 15 and them with their rich moms, you know, coming and their moms taking care of them and everything. I, It was a really tough time in my life. Your younger sister, who you mentioned there, I think she was five at the time that you and Sarah yeah. left. And is it right that she could distinguish? Because she'd grown she up. She was nine or ten, I, I think, yeah, because we are nine years apart. Okay. Yeah. Is it right that she could distinguish between the sound of mortar, fire and um, bombs? Yeah. Like, yeah, we all do, basically. Like, the difference between the missile and the bomb, the missile, you know it's coming, so you can already run. And you can see it, but the bomb, 
it's just the explosion that you see. Mm. That's the thing. And then there were things that we saw that were just really crazy. You, you think the last time I ever was near my house, like me and my family, it was all of us were in the car. And then when we entered the area, I swear on everything, it was like a Hollywood movie. It was so gray and you can f hear the bombings. You can see the destruction, the electricity cables, they were all falling apart. And then the checkpoint, the guy was like telling my dad, are you crazy bringing your family here? And then when we tried to get out, yeah. there was a tank and it already wanted to fire on us. I don't know how my dad went to reverse. And then we stayed at the house of the mayor for a while and then we got out. And yeah, this is, people ask why isn't this in the movie, but it's two hours. What are you going to put? Like, it's so much. So push to the point of this terror and desperation the decision is made that you and Sarah will embark on this journey. Yeah. You fly to Istanbul. Is uh, right? we, we flew to Beirut in to the Beirut. beginning. Okay. And that was the humiliating also part where you see in the movie where they say, don't take the life jackets. Yes, on the Sana. flight. Yes. And from Beirut, we go with the plane to Istanbul. And then after that, from Istanbul, we go... With the bus, all the curtains are closed, no phone, no bathroom, nothing, no breaks. In the movie, you don't see it 100% because obviously it, it would have taken them a longer time. But there was a whole road and then the smugglers put the bus inside of a ferry and this ferry crosses to an island and they cover it with huge trucks of, yeah. I don't know, equipment of, yeah. or stuff. And the bus is in the middle, and that was Freedom. terrifying. Yes. You can't open the curtains. You can't see where you're going. But obviously, we tried to see that, and we knew that we are on a ferry. So that was terrifying. And after that, you get on an island. They tell you, oh, you're holding. It's because your boat comes with you, basically. Your boat and motor comes with you, with the refugees that are coming. They make you carry it down, and then they tell you that's your boat, but that's a lie. You wait three, four days, you go down, you see the, you know, the trash, so many people on the island stuck. You see the life jackets because they were waiting to wear them, obviously. You talk to the people, you're like, oh, did you just arrive? They laugh at you. They're like, no, we've been here for days. So you know you have to be there for mm -hmm. days. And we had like only Mars, like really, really Mars heavy. Mars. Yeah, they're, they're really heavy chocolate. Yes. So if we get hungry, because we thought that that would have, would happen. We didn't have enough water though. So sometimes we had to share like a one liter bottle for a whole day or for a few days, no bathrooms. We didn't have any tents. We didn't have sleeping bags at the time because we thought we needed them from Athens. After that, we crossed with the boat. I would say dinghy, uh, we were 18 people on it. We crossed from then the island in Turkey. I have no clue where it was, maybe Izmir. We crossed from there to Lesvos. And then from Lesvos, we walked. When you get there, you think, okay, mm. I made it. But then you have a whole journey of like, I don't know how many kilometers we walked until we got like up to a place where people were there, like stores and so on. And mentioning meeting kind people we met this lady that owns a restaurant later on after being refused and we got greek food there and she told us to go to the church and sleep there because it's going to be cold at night and we did that we slept at the church 
And my sister, Sarah, after she went back to Lesbos, she went back to her and said hi. And she oh. told her we made it and everything. So Sarah went back to she help did. refugees in yeah, Lesbos. Lesbos. That's so beautiful. Yes, yes, she did. She did. So each country you cross, you have to get a paper saying this country does not want you as a refugee here. If you don't have this paper and you cross to the next country... So as example, if you cross and get to Germany, they send you back yes, to Greece. Right. So if you have the paper in Budapest, as example, in, in Hungary, you get sent back to Hungary yeah. because of the prints. Okay. That's why you never say as a refugee that you have a passport. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And lots of refugees did actually lose their passport or, or they got burnt or whatever, but mostly you do hide the passport. Right. Because you don't want to be a refugee in Greece or Hungary, you know, it's, it's not good. After that, we went to Athens with the big ferry. You can see that in the movie. Yeah. And honestly, that was also something that I would remember my whole life, that it was a good memory. It wasn't a bad memory. The bad memory is to be with thousands of refugees cramped up in a ferry. And the sad part is there was a system. Like, it wasn't just, you know, refugees crossing. Yes. There were fairies taking yes. the people. And I know, like, you know, getting a ticket is easy, but still, they knew we were refugees, so... I think that's There's a bigger picture. an extremely important point yes. that we shouldn't gloss over. Yes. There is an industrialized complex Definitely. around this. Yes. Trading on human misery. Those smugglers as well, they knew exactly what they were doing. I don't know what kind of mafia that was, but Turkey does play with refugees as well. Whenever they want, they let them go to make more pressure on, on Europe. Whenever they want, they keep them there. As a refugee in Turkey, you have zero rights. Of course, there are amazing people in Turkey that have been hosting Syrian people, their neighbors, and that's wonderful. But even if you live 10 years in Turkey, you don't even get an ID. We're living in an era of information overload. We've more knowledge than ever before. But what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries, docs find themselves and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. One of the many astonishing parts of this is that there is a photo of you yeah. as a refugee, I yes. think, in Hungary. Yeah. We have also interviews and everything. We did, I did interviews. Wow. So this, because it was part of this huge migration crisis. Yeah. 
there were a lot of journalists along yeah, the way. Yeah, along the way. Yeah, we met these two incredible journalists and they became family. Now we're still in touch. So we met Lam, he's a, a photographer, and his girlfriend Magdalena, that is a journalist. And Lam was a refugee himself. He comes mm. from Vietnam, mm. but he lives in, in Paris. And Magdalena, she comes from Czech Republic. At that point, they didn't know they want to make a book because they didn't know we are 30 people. Mm. But they then made a book about it and they did like a film about it and everything. Yeah, they, they took those photos and they documented everything. And it was incredible. They really did help us. And after that, we really became family. They still care about all of us. We still see each other. When my sister, later on, unfortunately, we will get to that point as yeah. well, got to jail, they were there and they, they also did a lot. But yeah, I also met another journalist. His name is Steven and he's from Belgium and he lives like between Belgium and Paris. And he came to me as well. I was that night, we were in Belgrade. That night, it was so special because, you know, we got to stay in a hotel. We lay, they let us stay in a hotel. And I showered and I did my makeup and everything. And I was outside in the tent afterwards. I went to everyone else, me and my sister and my cousin. We stayed at the hotel for one night and then we mm -hmm. found everyone else. And then he came to me. He was like, do you have time for an interview? And I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? And it's crazy to think about like what happened in my life because... Yes. In the interview with him, we were on the way in Vienna in the end, from Vienna to Germany. And he was like, what are you going to do in Germany? And then I was like, I'm just going to make Germany fun, you know. And now he's like crazy. Like after a year, I went to the Olympics and then there was the book and now the movie. And he's like, what are the odds? Literally, really? Yes. Yeah. The thing that really strikes me as you're telling this story is your incredible spirit your strength of character, which I feel from Thank having you. watched the movie, Sarah also has. Yeah. Did that ever flag at any point? What was the lowest point? Was there ever a point where you're like, I just can't do this? Like it must yeah. feel like a battle every Definitely. single day. Honestly, I had really a low point where I really believe that I was depressed. I don't know if I wanted to admit it. I didn't mm. know what depressed feels like, even to be like, am I depressed or not? But what happened is, and it wasn't because of my story, it was because of everything that happened afterwards. After I went to the Olympics, I was invited to the United Nations by like the president of the United States, Barack Obama, and then I met the Pope, and then I met incredible people all at once. And then I, it was high, 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 high. And then at one point, there was still media requests and everything, but the, like there was silence basically. Mm. And I was like, oh my God, what am I doing with my life? I felt the need of like doing great things every day. And if I didn't do that, I wasn't achieving anything. And I, it was a point where I moved from Berlin to Hamburg. I was heavily bullied by the swimmers at the Olympic Center by like, I did skip training a lot, but I did train at hotels because I had a lot of events because I lift off the work that I do because my story was different. And for me, it wasn't about... Obviously, I dreamt of winning a gold medal, but I knew deep down it wasn't only about that anymore. I knew that my work is also important and I cannot be the athlete that's going to be 100% mm. all about swimming. It's not like that anymore. My life changed and my purpose changed. They would be like, oh, she never comes to training. She doesn't deserve to be at the Olympics. I was so scared of this one girl 
that I called my coach sometimes and I said, Sven, I've been, it's the same coach that went with me to the Olympics. I would call him and tell him, Sven, I've been in bed. I've been in my apartment for one week. I skipped training and I said, I'm sick. I don't want to leave anywhere. I don't want to see anyone. I don't want to talk to my family. I don't want to talk to anyone. And that was the lowest point. I also was in a very, very toxic relationship that did not help as well. I had self-doubt, doubt of who I am, what was I doing? And I wanted to have my own foundation. I wanted to have everything very quickly, basically. And I was like, the movie wasn't going out. And then afterwards, COVID came to the game as well. So I did definitely have a low point. But I, at one point, realized that it was... 50% because of my toxic relationship. When I broke up, I realized, okay, I took care of myself and I realized I don't have to do something big every day. Yes. To be somebody. Yes. Fascinating to hear that because... Also, I never talked about that before, to well, be honest, neither. Well, thank like, you. I feel really honored that you could share it here. Of course. Because actually that thing of doing something great every day, yes, you met Barack Obama on the yeah. Pope and you addressed Davos World Economic yeah. Forum. But before that, that 25-day journey that you had to get to Berlin, you were doing something great every day. You yeah. were doing battle every single yeah. day with life and death. Yeah. So, of course, once you stop doing that, yeah. you must think... Well, he must be exhausted. And I do, until today, like, I do have this urge of, like, making people understand what I went through. Like, it still hurts. It's still, like, if I, like, sometimes talk to my boyfriend about it and he's like, oh, yeah, I understand. And then he walks away. I get so hurt. Yes. Because I don't want people to feel the pain. Of course I don't. But I want people to understand how difficult it was for me and that... It is painful still. And speaking about it with the media, some people like ask you the question and look down to the paper. I'm like, sometimes right now, mm -hmm. I am at the point where like, if someone does that with me, I would walk away from the room. Mm. Because my story and the story of those refugees are still crossing is so important yes. for you to look at the question. I understand if you have to read the question, you can wait for me to to tell you, because I'm sharing my pain with you. I'm sharing a really important journey with you that is not only my journey. I am representing millions of refugees around the world and I'm telling my story for the millionth of time because I want to make a difference. And you choose to ask me the question, and everyone asks me this question, how did it feel to be in the water? Like, what did you, like, how did it feel? And I'm like... One question was like, do you feel lucky that you made it mm. and others didn't? And you are here today and speaking and like getting famous and everything. And I'm like, wow. my sister was furious about the question because it was for me and her. And I just took it calmly. I told her, you know what? I am very lucky and I am doing what I'm doing today because of those people who didn't make it. And because I don't want other people to go through the same thing. But it does hurt you when people ask such stupid questions. Of course it does. And also there's a sense that they just want to get to that question, have the answer straight away and then move on. Mm -hmm. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier about... Yeah, ignorance and... Yes, and your story and the story of all these millions of refugees that you represent, I think the thing that I really want to get across and you do such a beautiful job of is that every single one of those statistics is a life. 
Of course. Is a life lived with yeah. complexities and love affairs yeah. Yeah. and friendships yeah. and homes that they've had to leave behind. And I mean, I wanted to ask you this earlier. What did you take with you when you embarked on this journey and you knew you were leaving your home and your country and your family? How do you decide what to take? It was really, really hard. I knew that I took basically my three favorite t-shirts, one hoodie, probably one jeans and one joggers. My mom sent the medical aid case with us. We took dots. Is it dots? No, the things you eat, like it's small, very Arabic. You eat it okay. in Ramadan. Okay. And I took a bracelet that my best friend gave me. She knew that I was going on this journey and she gave me a bracelet. I put it on my wrist. And then there was a necklace also from my friends. One day before I leave, they got a cake with lots of pictures of us, all of us. I said goodbye. My mom was sobbing the whole time. And that was it. It was one bag. I had this bandana at the airport. I still remember we have a photo of it. And that was it. And before I got on the boat, I had to throw everything, everything. And I had the bracelet and all of that, but I don't think I have them anymore. I have the selfie bag that I had on the side when I was on the boat and my phone that I, I had, and they're in a museum in Germany, actually. So that was everything that I took. And I had to throw everything before getting on the boat. And when I was on the boat, I had very, very small back, like very small. It wouldn't affect the boat in any way. I had my glasses because I wear glasses and I get dizzy very quickly sometimes. And then I had those necklaces and like bracelets. And then my cousin freaked out and he threw it when everyone was throwing everything. So I got to the shore only with my T-shirt. By the way, in the movie... It's the exact same T-shirt. It's not the, the actual T-shirt. They designed wow. the exact same T-shirt. Molly, the, the stylist, she did that with the jeans, the bandana. That was the exact outfit I was wearing. And it was emotional for me to see that. And this T-shirt. So when I got to Greece, I had jeans, a gray T-shirt, I still remember. And I had no shoes because I don't know why I thought it's a good idea to wear Timberlands on such a journey. It was, <laughs> it was not. Like for land, very good. I know. For sea, no, I had good. to throw it. And I did remember, I do remember I had Crocs. Okay. Like something like Crocs. They were very, very special to me and I had to throw them as well. But yeah, I had no shoes when I got there. And then the very kind Greek girl gave me shoes and gave the little boy a sweater. So yeah, I did re really have to abandon everything. But it wasn't really that hard for me because mm. I already have lost our apartment and everything was destroyed. My baby pictures, everything, everything. And that's why I think I have a problem now with giving things away. Whatever I have, like my mom is like, this t-shirt you have since six years, you never wear. Why don't you like just give it away? And when I left Germany now, like I, when I moved to LA, it was so hard for me. Mm. And I was like, oh, maybe I will, maybe I will. And I think that is because I had to abandon everything at such a young age when I was 17. It is my identity. Like exactly. My baby, yeah. like there was this trend, I don't know if you remember, but like post a picture of you now and then when you were a baby or something like yes. that. And everyone did it on Instagram and tagged the next person and my friends tagged me. They all did it and they were like, you're so arrogant, you didn't do it, why? Like everyone did it. And I was sobbing and I was like, I do not have any baby pictures of me. They were all burnt in the war. Like, I do not have to explain everything to you. And that broke my heart. Of course it did. I'm so sorry. And 
I want to save that concept for the, your third and final failure because yeah. your third and final failure is, is so profound. It goes to the root of who we are, yeah. as where our identities come from. But I'm just aware that I've been talking to you. I could talk to you for hours because I really do want to hear every single aspect of your story. But we do have a second failure, which is failing at swimming the times that you wanted to swim. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing that relates to the Olympics mm -hmm. and what you said there earlier about dreaming of winning a gold medal, but knowing that your story was bigger than that. Yeah. It took me years to understand. And I, there's still like this denial in me where I'm like, a part of me knew that the training that I had in Syria and everything that I had in Syria, the support I had there and just the equipments and everything, they were not enough to make mm -hmm. me, you know, the next Olympic champion. I did, however, believe if my dad was my coach, I did 1000% believe that I'm going to get a gold medal. But my dad was difficult as a person and that did not help at all. So when I got to Germany, I had some sponsor deals and so on. And he did embarrass me in front of them. And I did not trust him as a coach anymore, neither. And that was like the perfect duo. But I couldn't deal with his personality anymore. It was very, very difficult. And it's probably also a regret for me that I did not try to train with him again when I was in Germany. It also did establish my personality on my own mm. with the other coaches. I do until now. I'm struggling with swimming with like, do I give it a, another one last time? I give everything or do I just say I've been to two Olympics? I reached something way, way bigger than, than a gold medal. Let's move on. I feel like I'm grieving right now because yeah. I've been a swimmer since I was three years old and it's a huge part of me and I do not want to let it go. And it does really hurt just to know that I'm not going to win a gold medal. Of course, I did not just let it go, but I knew I saw like, if you compare like, as example, my body to a German swimmer's body, there's like no chance. It's crazy just by her hand. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there obviously there are some exceptions in the swimming world. There are some small swimmers that are good, but those have been trained But as example, the Canadian teams, the Canadian doctors, Canadian physical therapists, since they were very, very young, so they do have a chance. And for me, it's very, very different. I did start training twice a day when I got to Germany when I was 18. And for a swimmer, that's like crazy. That's late. So you were in a refugee camp. In, it's not really a camp. Yeah, it, it was. Yeah, no, it was camp. a camp. Okay. In Berlin. Yeah. And... Am I right in thinking that you found the local swimming club and yeah. turned up and yeah. that's how you started training yeah. with your coach Yeah, Stan. exactly. So when we were in the camp, me and my sister were like looking for swimming pool nearby because we wanted to swim. There was this very, very kind Egyptian translator. We went to him. We were like, can you please help us? We are professional swimmers. We would love to swim again. He was like, are you really swimmers? Because lots of people said they're professional athletes and they were not. And they were like, no, 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 we are. We went to the swimming club. Sven was there. He was like, yeah, okay, I'm going to test you. We went to the water and he was like, did you train before like in the US or Canada or something like that? We were like, no. And they were like, the technique is so good. And that was my dad again, because he was crazy about swimming and about perfecting and about, you know, meeting the, the, the world standards. He wanted us to really become Olympic champions, really. Yeah. And maybe there was a chance, who knows? <laughs> and he had been a competitive swimmer himself. That's why yes. he got. But I'm very interested and very moved by you saying that you think you're grieving mm -hmm. and that there's part of you 
maybe a conflicted part that feels like maybe I need to let that go now. Yeah. But it so ties in with what we were talking about before that, which is letting clothes go. Yeah. Because you have been denied so yeah. much of your own history and yeah. so many of the markers that many of us take for granted in terms of our own identity, swimming is or has been your identity. Yeah, exactly. And that's another thing now that you're potentially having to come to terms with losing. Yeah. But what I want to tell you is that you are so much more than that. Thank you. You are so much more than any identity that any role or object could give you. You are an extraordinary person. Thank you. And you exist in an extraordinary way beyond any of those things. And so I just want to acknowledge that and also to say that I'm sorry that you're going through this Thank because you. I can feel yeah. your sadness. Yeah, I mean, I I honestly, I did. I, if you ask me right now, would you want to win a gold medal or do it all over again? Everything that I did with UNHCR and refugees, I honestly would not even think about it. I would start for the Refugee Olympic team. You see in the movie, I struggled with like the word refugees that also one of the fails. Yes. Um, and I did struggle with the word refugee. And this team, the Refugee Olympic team has given me so much beyond what I could have ever imagined. The respect that I gained because of this team, the hope that we gave the world when this team was first created. We were 10 athletes coming from every nation. You know, we were so diverse from different countries. Do you know that how huge that is mm-hmm. from people to come from all around the world and finally be one team representing millions of refugees around the world competing under the Olympic flag? I would never, ever change that. And it took me a while to understand because I wasn't educated in the right way about refugees and everything. We had refugees in Syria from Palestine, but it was just a, it was a close country, I guess. So I didn't really take it seriously. And I was very young. And in general, I was so material when I was in Syria. I cared about like how really everything that I was wearing and how I looked and every single detail. And then when I saw the moment that everything changed for me with swimming and with like understanding that it's way bigger than me, is that when it was the opening ceremony, when we walked into that stadium, the whole stadium stood up. You can see the president of the International Olympic Committee standing up, the very important people standing up. And after that, that was one point that I was very, very proud of. The second point was I got messages of kids of people all around the world saying, when I read about you, when I knew about you and how that you did not give up, that you tried your best to do everything you can and here you are like succeeding, I wanted to take more responsibility about my family. Like one guy was like telling me how his dad passed away and he wanted to take responsibility for his family, but he felt it so heavy when he read the story. He understood that, you know, it can be difficult, but you can make it. And that was so emotional for me. And then you saw the kids wearing the, like writing on the, on the caps, you saw Mardini and like just being inspired by that and by the team and by the hope the team represented. It's like, you know what? Grow up. It's not about you anymore. It's about millions, really. And I was 18 when I realized that. And slowly I became into my role, like of being a, a goodwill ambassador and realizing that I do have a strong voice. And when I sit down and talk, people listen. Mm -hmm. 
because I am honest about my story and I told everything and my emotions are true. And when I share a, my story, it's genuinely because I really want people to understand and I want people to really understand that we really want a safe place. And when I left, I wasn't thinking about becoming famous. I wasn't thinking about anything but swimming and me being safe and my family being safe. That's it. Why would I go to Germany? It's so cold and it's very different, you know. Yes. Um, that was a journey, definitely, yeah. definitely, yeah. A physical journey and a journey of the soul, it sounds yeah. like. And that is your third failure, not accepting the fact yeah. that you became a refugee, which you've explained so beautifully. I wonder if I could do a very embarrassing thing <laughs> Tell and, and read out a quote of, course. of yours. Of course. And it was a speech that you gave to the World Economic Forum. And I just found it so moving that I wanted to read it. And you said, so who is this refugee? Well, once I was just like you. I had a home. I had roots. I belonged. Like you, I lived my life day by day, caught up in my own hopes, passions and problems. Then war came and everything changed. War gave me a new name, a new role, a new identity. Refugee. Sorry, I don't know why that is so moving, because I think it just shows that you were a victim of this force beyond anyone's control. Yeah. It was difficult for me to just understand why did this happen to me and why do I deserve that? Everything that I did, like work with refugees, I did not feel. It's a part also of why I like had a really low point in life mm. where I was like sitting home. I didn't want to talk to anyone or anything. It's because after all the work that I've done for refugees, speaking about the stories and everything, I didn't feel like I helped them. And that was something that I really, really struggled with. My main goal is to be able to create something or a system for refugees that lives on when I'm away, when I'm gone. Yes. And this is one of the things that I think about a lot, that I want to be the type of person that when I'm gone from this world, not my name will be remembered, but the things that I've done to change the world, to make it a better place, to make people understand that I am normal, you mm -hmm. know, and that one day I'm meeting the president of the United States, the next day I'm going with the bike to training. Yes. That is who I am and that is who I will always be. I will yeah. always be this person that you can come up to and talk to about anything because I do want to help people and one day hopefully I would be so proud to build schools, to build buildings, to host refugees, to build, you know, routes where they can take. People would think I'm crazy and unrealistic when I say those things, but I really want to change something and provide them with the help they need and not just tell their stories and my own story. I really, really want to change something. I believe it's going to happen and I believe you can do it. And I think this failure of finding it difficult to step into your identity as refugee, I think is very profound for people listening. Everyone will have quite an ignorant conception of what they believe a refugee to be, mm -hmm. unless they have been one themselves. Yeah. And what I most want people to take away from this is that that isn't a category. Like it's yeah. it's what you're saying when you're saying refugees, you're saying human. Obviously. You're saying human in absolutely just a label that yes. I don't know who created the label. One time I had a speech and someone was like, do you think that the word refugee should be different? 
like the label refugee. And then I was like, that's not the problem. Yeah. I was like, we don't care about what we are called. I was like, I didn't care about like the word, the wording refugee. I cared about how am I being treated. When you talk about the Arabic world is always painted in this gray colors, the media portrays it in the worst possible way. So one thing to take of this too, choose what media you decide to watch as well, because that is very, very important. Go back to books, go back to the old ways, try to investigate. Like I love old-fashioned journalism where you used to like literally go everywhere to find out the really real information where I told my story thousands of times and I told the media so many times, so many times, the rope when I was swimming was not around my waist. I didn't pull. I was 17. I had, I was like 50 kilo grams. I couldn't pull a boat like that. It's impossible. And every time I told them that I was holding the rope and trying to pull and push me and my sister, they chose to ignore what I said and say that the rope was around my waist. Why? Because they want the hero story that sells. Mm. So choose the media that you listen to and you read very, very wisely, especially here in the UK. It's very confusing, I guess. Tell me about it. <laughs> since, you know, years. So in general, it really makes a difference. And literally go back to books. That's the best things. And I always say this about the Arabic world. There's one scene in the movie that is very, very powerful. And it's my favorite scene is where me and my sister are dancing to titanium and you see the bombs and that was the reality of war we wanted to be normal we wanted to live a normal life we wanted to live basically and even if it was five minutes that was ordinary and very normal where we felt like life was fine and safe again we tried to take it Mm -hmm. and you don't see that scene anywhere either in media and any other movies. And the director, Sally, did an amazing job putting that in. One thing I want to mention as well is Sia's music. It was my playlist. Titanium and Unstoppable, it's my playlist. She asked me and my sister, Manal and Natalie also, all of us for our playlist and for the music that motivates us and everything. And I put Titanium and Unstoppable in my playlist and she chose them. Oh, that is so yeah. wonderful. Yeah, it is. And the, the Arabic music is from Manal's okay. playlist. Some music is from Sarah's. That's beautiful. It so is. Everything we hear in the film. Is from our playlist. You mentioned your sister, Sarah, and I don't want to end this interview without talking yes, about please. what happened to her. Yeah. Because she decided, after having got to Berlin, she wanted to go back to Lesbos and yes. to help other refugees as she and yeah. you had been. Yeah. And she, after a couple of years, I think, was arrested by Greek authorities. Yes, she was arrested by Greek authorities. She stayed in jail for three months. They accused her of being a people Uh, smuggler, which I can imagine must have been so horrendous for her. As a refugee. Yes, and you being a refugee, being accused of things like that, like she risked everything and her getting the German passport to go back to Greece and help people. That's how kind my sister is. She has such a white heart where even if she saw someone like on the street, a homeless person that, you know, needs a sweater, she would take it off and give it to them. Mm. Since we were in Syria, if she saw someone, she would come up to my mom and ask her, do we have like some spoons and like plates and so on that we don't need? My mom was like, what do you need them for? Yeah, there's a homeless man downstairs and I want to give them some stuff. Like, that's how she was. And it broke my heart that she had to go through, you know, this terrible time. It has been five years 
there's until now no court date that is inhuman and she has so many charges her and other people as well not only her she is right now actually in greece she had to sign something and i it must be so emotional for her this is the first time she enters Greece after being in jail. So it was like four or five years ago. Yeah, I really, really hope that this is going to end soon. It has been going on for such a long time. My sister is very wild and like free spirit. I hope really that will end soon because it has been really difficult for her, especially like with her mental health. She just was trying to help. And this is happening Actually, this happened multiple times. This is not the first time that this happens in Europe. Lots of humanitarians were wrongfully being in jail. There's this page on Instagram. It's called Free Humanitarians. Mm -hmm. It does a lot and campaigns for those humanitarians. There are petitions that can be signed Mm -hmm. about that. And we do have an amazing support. We have good lawyers. We have Amnesty, Human Rights Watch. We have lots of really supportive people. We have Netflix. We have... Working titles and the whole cast. So you have a lot of support. And as small as this may be in comparison, I'll put a link to that in the show notes and also other ways to help link to the UNHCR, Choose Love, an amazing charity that works with refugees. I cannot thank you enough for coming on this podcast. It has been profoundly moving and enlightening at the same time. I think you're a phenomenal person. And I'm so grateful for you and for your existence on this planet. <laughs> Thank you. No, that also the journalist also matters to me and it, it makes such a difference of how you're asking the people about the story and how you show interest and so on. And some information I never shared before. So I'm really glad that to have this conversation with you and to be here. It is my last interview for the day as well <laughs> excellent and now you're going to go off and do some shopping yeah right? <laughs> definitely <laughs> replace those t-shirts yeah yusra mardini thank you so so much for coming on how hey, to fail thank you for having me thanks if you enjoyed this episode of how to fail with elizabeth day i would so appreciate it if you could rate review and subscribe apparently it helps other people know that we exist